You are listening to Pankanori. The following is unedited, recorded in one take and completely improvised. Season 1, Chapter 4, Tracks. Oscar went to bed at 11.15pm on the evening before his pilgrimage to meet his tormentor. A lifelong tormentor that he didn't know existed until a mere 48 hours before. He folded up his glasses and placed them meticulously on the nightstand next to his bed. Laid back and closed his eyes and couldn't for the life of him get to sleep. It seemed to be a fatal flaw in the design of human beings that the eve of a big event, a significant event, sleep was so hard to come by. Just when you knew that the next day you would need all of your wherewithal and alertness, sleep was the last thing you could manage, and the more you worry about falling asleep, the less likely it becomes. Oscar, in his dopey twilight haze, started to think that this is because human beings aren't supposed to know what tomorrow brings. As soon as we started programming our days and having schedules and timetables, anxiety was created. He thought that in the old days when the hunter-gatherers lived in small tribes, we would be walking the forest, happen across an, an incident of great grave danger, like a wild boar attack, fight, kill the boar, defeat it, without having time to think about it or worry about it, learn what we were to learn what we learnt from it, and then evolve as a species. But in the absence of things in the rear view mirror, but the build-up of things out in front of us, we catastrophize and ruminate. This neurosis was a substitute for the actual suffering that we are supposed to suffer, and it was the downfall of mankind. Oscar self-meditated with alcohol. He always had a problem sleeping his whole entire life, and as he laid there in bed thinking about what it was, he had an epiphany, a revelation. It was the shutdown at the end of the day that he couldn't bear. It filled him with dread and morbidity. Systematically turning off the lights as you go up the creaking stairs where the creaks seem to be amplified much louder than they do in the daytime. Unplugging things, drawing the curtains, shutting out the day, admitting it's over. Admitting the day behind you is one more you will never have in front of you made him think about his own mortality and death. That was why he hated sunsets. People told him that sunsets were beautiful, but not to Oscar. Oscar could see the second hand that ticked all day, happening all at once in the sunset, as if it built up. He could ignore the tick, tick, tick of the second hand of his clock, but it was impossible to ignore the giant disc going down behind the Earth's horizon one more time. Again, a sunset he's seen, but will never see again. He had about 25 minutes sleep, it felt like, in the night. But even so, he woke up, got up at 7.30, brushed his teeth, had a shave, put on his best clothes and grabbed his duffel bag. In his duffel bag, he placed all the correspondence that he had found to his wife from his tormentor and took them out to the boot of his car. As he walked out to the boot of his car, a very proud grandfather came past with his grandson in a pram, probably about a year and a half. 
As the, as the grandfather pushed the grandson past him, he stared at Oscar, and Oscar stared into the boy's face and into the boy's eyes. Oscar had always had a strange habit. He couldn't look into the face of a child without seeing the old man it were to become, and conversely, he couldn't look into the face of the old man without seeing the child he once was. He didn't realise what was most depressing, the cynicism and infirmness that was yet to be in the child, or the innocence of youth that was lost in the old man. Both, he decided, were as bad as each other. Oscar realised that not having children may have been the greatest gift that Agnes never, ever gave him, because he was able to do what he was about to do without fear of his next of kin. He got in his car and he started to drive. He didn't put the radio on, he didn't look out the, out the side windows, he just stared at the white lines in the motorway going past him. Each white line that passed him was like the ticking of the second hand of the clock. He drove and he drove and he drove until a alarm sounded on the dashboard alerting him that he was out of fuel. He pressed some of the infernal control buttons to file through the rudimentary computer on his speedo and there he found he had 65 miles left. 15 miles later he came across a garage and pulled in. He filled his car up with petrol and went in to pay. The cashier was extremely young. So young that Oscar didn't understand how this person could even have a job. When did people become so young, he thought to himself. Or, as he realised, he the real question was, when was it that I became so old and irrelevant and stopped caring about the trappings of youth culture? He was always an outsider, Oscar, even at school. But there was a time when it bothered him, when he was concerned, when he had the fear of missing out, when he hated being ostracised from the social circles. Then there was a time when he felt like it slipping away and he was never going to be a part of it. That was the worst time. That was the midlife crisis that people talk about. When you feel yourself going from unpopular child to insignificant adult. The third phase, Oscar's favourite phase, was the invisible old man. He felt like it was a superpower, able to walk around society, passing comment and judgment, yet not being subjected to that same level of judgment himself. He felt like a social umpire. Across the forecourt, there was a coffee chain. He decided to go and have a coffee for the first time in his life, because Oscar, as we know, was a tea drinker. As he stood in line, he again was behind a very, very young person, constantly taking photographs of himself and sending them to people as he was stood in line waiting for his coffee. When he reached the barista, not that Oscar knew that's what this person was called, he asked for a skinny soy latte with caramel syrup. The woman asked him his name. He said his name was Jordan. She wrote it on the side of the paper cup and then her gaze turned to Oscar. What can I get you, sir? She said. I'll have a skinny soy latte with caramel syrup, said Oscar. Right you are. She entered it into the computer like Till. Can I take a name? He looked down at his feet and stared her straight in the eye. Albert, he said. About three or four minutes later, she called out the name Albert and everyone looked round because it was such an antiquated name. But he never felt like a name had suited him more. He got his coffee and took three sips and threw it straight in the bin. It was bitter, creamy, and it made his throat claggy like he needed to clear it. 
It wasn't for him, but he tried it. And he walked back to his car and got inside. He drove for another two hours and 15 minutes again in silence, ruminating about what it was become. Until he heard a knocking in the back axle. He pulled over in a lay-by and realised that he'd probably been sold a nail by the salesman. And he'd been ripped off, but it wasn't to matter because this car wouldn't be in his life for long. He wasn't to be in his own life for long. He was near the end. He was near the final sunset. As he was in the lay-by, he saw three people sat in the car in front of him. A woman in her 50s and two people, probably her parents in their mid-80s, all sat there eating sandwiches they had prepared because they wanted to save money in the lay-by of a motorway. As the HGV lorries went past, their car shook and made them look even more fragile, sat in their little tin can eating their depressing little sandwiches. He imagined their life when she was 18, when she was a fiery young woman discovering her sexuality, when she used to try and sneak home at three in the morning and her parents would be up asking where she'd been and they was able to smell the smell of cigarettes and semen on her breath. But now she was just waiting to die and doing the dutiful daughter thing and spending time with her parents as they waited to die. All of them waiting to die together but not one of them mentioning it. A sad, tragic scene and once again Oscar was grateful he'd never had children. He carried on driving. His sat-nav told him he was 25 minutes from his destination. But this can't be right. He had turned off the A roads, turned off the B roads and was now going down one of those long donkey tracks. One of those tracks that goes across the terrain where there's two bald patches where the tyres go and in between those is tufts of grass that caress and kiss your exhaust pipe as you drive down them. The rear axle was knocking even longer. He had another eight minutes to go. He hoped the car would hold out as he went slower and slower past through all the potholes. He came to a clearing, the most beautiful topography he'd ever seen. Hills as close to mountains as you get in this country, all around a gigantic lake and there next to the lake was a little stone house with a fire smoke billowing out of the chimney and a little white picket fence and laundry on the line. It was the sort of thing that you saw in films but you'd never seen in real life. You can't imagine anyone could live in such a place but evidently someone did. He pulled up his car and he got out and he saw a man standing in the garden staring at him almost as if he'd been waiting for him his whole life. Can I help you, stranger? said the man. Uh... Not really, said Oscar, realising that his game plan hadn't got beyond arriving here. I think I might have took a wrong turn, I'm sorry. Um, My car's playing up a bit, I wonder, is it? would it be a... Do you know anything about cars? I sure do, said the man. I used to be a mechanic. What's wrong with it? Just a strange knocking sound coming from the axle. Come over here, said the man. Have a drink. Let's have a cup of tea. You look like you could use one. We'll look at the car in a second. Oscar was taken back by the stranger's hospitality. It was quite a remote place, and Oscar thought, had this roles been reversed and Oscar was living in such a remote place, he would have been far more suspicious of any stranger turning up on his doorstep. They came over. So, you say you're a mechanic, said Oscar. Well, marine mechanic. I worked on boats. Ah, boats, said Oscar. That would explain why you live near the water, would it? Oh, yeah, said the man. Over there, there's my pride and joy. And there was a little homemade jetty, all rickety and dishevelled. And at the end of it was an equally rickety and dishevelled fishing boat. One of those boats was like a large, slightly larger rowboat of a tiny garden shed in the middle and an outboard motor. 
I was about to go out on it, actually. Can you hear the engines running? Oscar zoned in. He could. Don't let me stop you, said Oscar. I don't mean to be any trouble. Oh, it's okay, said the man. I've got some lobster pots out there. Uh, we get lobsters up here, you know. And uh, they're all tangled and I've got to bring them in and repair them. It's not really anything urgent. I'll go turn the motor off. No, 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 no. Don't, took the mo don't turn the motor off, said Oscar. I've never actually been on a boat. What? You've never been on a boat? Well, I went on a cruise liner a few times with my wife. It was more her thing. And I've been on the ferry when I used to go on trips abroad looking for military memorabilia in the fields. But apart from that, I've never been on a boat like that. Well, would you like to come on it? Said the man. Really? Said Oscar. Oscar wasn't sure if this was part of some sort of amazingly improvised master plan or the man's just natural charisma was having its effect. Uh, sure, just let me go and check something in the car first. Oscar walked back to the car and opened the boot and unzipped his duffel bag and he started rifling through all the photographs and letters of this said man until at the bottom he removed his German-issue bayonet and put it up the sleeve of his jacket and walked back over to the boat. Have you ever owned a dog? Have you ever seen a rescue dog that's been abused by a human? Have you ever seen how broken it is in its eyes, its tail between its legs, uncontrollably shaking? It can't put a brave face on it like humans can. But I've also seen dogs that have attacked each other. I've seen that when a dog's out walking in the park and a larger dog such as a bull terrier attacks it, it can cause massive amounts of damage, maiming the dog, big scars, stitches have to be put in by a vet, a vet but the dog's heart rate doesn't seem to end, it doesn't seem to bother it at all. Why is it that a beast that has been selectively bred to serve humans can only be mentally broken by said humans? It's almost as if when dogs attack each other, they know it's expected. They don't expect anything better of a dog. External, you're standing on the shore. You're looking at a fishing boat in the middle of a giant lake. You can see two men, so small you can't see what is going on. The men look like they're talking. They look like they're starting to argue. They look like they're embracing. Could they be hugging, making up, or could one be getting the other in a stranglehold? Both men go inside, close the door, and disappear for 20 minutes. 20 minutes later, the men emerge. The, more, the outboard motor starts revving up, and the boat starts coming back to the shore where you're standing. As it arrives at the shore, one man gets off. He looks broken, staring at the floor with his tail between his legs. As he gets halfway back to his car, unable to look up, the man on the boat shouts at him. Oscar! You think I stole your diamond? Whereas in fact, you never had a diamond to steal. The second I'd touched it, we realised, all three of us, it was merely a piece of coal. Oscar paused. The words sank in. He never turned round and he walked back to his car. He sat in his car and adjusted the rear view mirror so he could look through the back window as the man on the boat started cutting his lobster nets with a German issued bayonet. He then reached up to the rear view mirror and angled it down so he could look into his dead, dark eyes. He saw nothing. He then angled the mirror again and inspected the, fresh, inspected the fresh bite mark on his cheek. 